Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. I don't tend to do a lot of topical episodes on this show, but this was too good to pass up. If you've been following the news in the U.S. for the past six weeks or so, you might have noticed a spate of scary clown sightings. Clowns in the woods, outside of American communities, trying to lure away children to... something. Some kind of nebulously defined clowny doom. And it's just that. Sightings, reports, rumors, kids in certain communities saying, Guys, there were totally clowns out there, and they're totally trying to... get us. But to the best of my knowledge, this has just been a whole lot of panic and sensationalism, and not anything indicative of an actual coordinated attempt at Harlequin-themed kidnapping. If I had to venture a guess, I'd say that this is a moral panic akin to, say, the Salem Witch Trials, or the 1980s Satanic Panic. It's a whole lot of fear, and not a lot to be afraid of. Also, this is not the first time this has happened. In 1981, there was another rash of phantom clown sightings, and it was a whole lot of hand-wringing and getting scared, and not a lot of, you know, actual clown-themed murder or kidnapping. But along with this is the question of, hey, how did clowns get scary? How did these once-lovable figures of fun turn into a horror trope? What is the deal with that? And when looking at this question of why are clowns scary or how did they get scary, it is tempting to look at, for example, John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer in the 1960s and 1970s, who was sometimes known to dress up as a clown for kids' parties. Another culprit that is oft-pointed to is Stephen King's novel It and the subsequent miniseries starring Tim Curry as Pennywise the Killer Clown. But I'm going to say that the scary clown trope you really can't root it in John Wayne Gacy or Stephen King. No, for this episode, I want to make the case that clowns have always been kind of sort of unsettling, and that darkness and malevolence and comedy, they're not necessarily contradictory. You can be dark, and you can be comedic. A scary clown isn't a contradiction. A scary clown is just a kind of clown. So I want to start off with basically the founder of clowns as we know them, that's Joseph Grimaldi. Any discussion of modern clowns has to mention Joseph Grimaldi, who in the early 1800s was one of the most famous people in England. Grimaldi invented much of what we think of as modern clown makeup. He sported white grease paint, colorful features, and a blue mohawk. Before that, jesters and comic performers, they might have applied some rouge or some makeup to enhance their features, or makeup to make them more visible to audience members. But Grimaldi, he really went a distance in making himself look otherworldly. He didn't just have enhanced features, he had alien features. And when you picture what clowns look like, well, he did that. He also called himself Joey the Clown, which is why for some time clowns were known as Joey's. As somebody who went by Joey for a while when he was a young Joseph, I find this a little weird. But his performances, they were slapstick and they were broad. Um, probably one-eighth of all the people in England saw him while he was alive. But he was also famously sort of a mess in his home life. He suffered from depression and alcoholism, and also one of his kids died. So he was 
funny on the outside, but kind of tortured in a wreck on the inside. And his story was popularized by Charles Dickens in The Pickwick Papers. And here's Dickens in that novel describing a clown based on Grimaldi. Dickens writes, quote, Never shall I forget the repulsive sight that met my eye when I turned around. He was dressed for the pantomime, in all the absurdity of a clown's costume. The spectral figures in the dance of death, the most frightful shapes that the ablest painter ever portrayed on canvas, never presented an appearance half so ghastly. His bloated body and shrunken legs, their deformity enhanced a hundredfold by the fantastic dress, the glassy eyes contrasting fearfully with the thick white paint with which the face was besmeared, their grotesquely ornamented head trembling with paralysis, and the long skinny hands rubbed with white chalk all gave him a hideous and unnatural appearance of which no description could convey an adequate idea and which to this day I shudder to think of. Unquote. Dang, Chuck D., that is some purple prose you got there. Also, way to say, which no description could convey, after just giving us a big old paragraph-long description. Oh, Dickens, you like adjectives. It is tempting to look at Grimaldi and contrast the darkness of his own life with the jollity of his performances, and descriptions like Dickens's and see that as kind of a zero-point for dark-tinged clowns. I do think it's a bit more complicated than that, though, and I'll get to that a bit later. But at least Grimaldi himself, he had somewhat of a sense of humor about his own terrible life and his own public persona. He remarked that even though he was happy and fun and slapsticky on stage, his name meant Grim All Day. And I have to respect a man who could make a good pun. But I want to move on to another clown from English pop culture, where the darkness wasn't contrasting with the comedy, or tangential to the comedy, but part of the comedy. And that is Punch and Judy shows. You might have seen them before. That's that thing where, you know, you have a little puppet theater, and you have a pair of glove puppets operated by the puppeteer who is popularly known as the Punch Professor. And you've got Mr. Punch and a rotating cast of other people whom he murders. The basic plot is that it starts out with Punch and his wife Judy. They're at home, and Judy asks Punch to watch the baby. So she, a puppet, gives Mr. Punch another puppet, this like tiny little hot dog sized baby prop. And then she leaves, and Mr. Punch, he's alone with the baby, and he doesn't know how to baby because, you know, he's a guy and. Guys aren't supposed to know things like that. Thanks, patriarchy. Anyway, he usually does something horrible to the baby, like tossing it out a window or into a sausage grinder or that sort of thing. And Judy comes home and she wonders, hey, where's the baby? And Mr. Punch says, I threw it into a sausage grinder. That's the cue to laugh. This is supposed to be funny. The baby murder part. So they get into a big fight and Mr. Punch, he pulls out a slapstick, which is the same size as him, because again, puppet, and he murders his wife with it. A police officer shows up, and he says, Hey, I heard a disturbance here. What's all this then? And Mr. Punch murders the police officer. Then there's a whole bunch of other characters, and Punch will interact with them. He will murder them in turn with his slapstick. Eventually, at the end of the show, a hangman shows up, saying, Hey, you've been murdering people all day. Um, time for you to die. And then Mr. Punch will beat up the hangman with his slapstick, or he'll trick the hangman into putting his own head into a noose, and then the hangman dies, but it's not over yet. Then the devil, yes, Lucifer, Satan, the adversary, shows up and says, You just did a bunch of murder. I am here for your soul. 
Then Mr. Punch beats up the devil, and the show ends with him laughing like a maniac about all the stuff he's gotten away with, and this is supposed to be fun comedy times for kids. Domestic abuse, murder, slipping of temporal authorities in the form of beating up police and hangmen, and slipping of spiritual authorities in the form of literally killing the devil. Mr. Punch is a clown who not only is incidentally scary, but is explicitly murdery. And I know what you're probably thinking here. You're thinking that Punch isn't a clown. He's a puppet. Yes, he is a puppet. But he's a very, very clowny puppet. Punch has stylized features. He has a huge chin, and he has a very large hat, which, when seen in profile, kind of resemble a crescent moon. He has big eyes, he has a perpetual smiling clownish grin, and he also speaks in a strange clownish way. Traditionally, punch professors voice him through a kazoo-like filter called a swazzle. His distorted, stylized, smiling features and strange voice resemble clowns, and he is explicitly a murder clown. He's a clown who kills people, and that's played for laughs. You can't say that scary clowns are anomalous, when one of the most popular informative clown characters of the Western world gets his laughs by beating up his wife and the devil. Speaking of clowns committing domestic violence, Pagliacci. Pagliacci, it's an 1892 opera about an Italian clown who kills his wife, and it is supposedly maybe based on real events, but that's unsubstantiated. The story concerns Canio, a clown who heard that his wife, Netta, is having an affair with another guy. Now, unlike in Othello, she totally is. She's having an affair with a dude named Silvio. There's also another dude who's into Netta, but she's not into them. Anyway, Canio says that even though he plays a buffoon on stage, he's not a buffoon in real life, and he's not going to stand for other dudes doing dude things with his lady. But he has a performance that night, and he's going to put on his game face. So he gets into his clown suit and sings all about how he's funny on the outside, but all jealous and rage-fueled on the inside. So later on, Kanio and Netta, by the way, Netta, his wife, also a clown, they are like a clown couple, they are in the evening in the middle of a performance. But while they're supposed to be performing and being clowns and entertaining people, they start arguing on stage in front of an audience. And the audience, they see the clowns fight, and they think it's an act. So they just start laughing that, you know, the two absurd people are having a fight in front of them. They think it's this weird sort of, I don't know, clown fight domestic situation. Then later on, it starts escalating and Kanyo on stage, still in his clown getup, still in front of an audience, gets a knife, stabs his wife, stabs her lover, and then big pool of blood and dead bodies says to the audience who's watched the whole thing, the comedy is finished. Opera clowns, everyone. That's not quite like Punch and Judy, where the murder is played for laughs. But it is kind of like Joseph Grimaldi, where you see a certain amount of contrast between the exterior of the clown and the grease paint hiding something. Hiding a certain darkness within. And here's the thing. Canio, and also Mr. Punch, uh, he kills his wife while wearing his clown outfit. Brief aside, people like to call John Wayne Gacy a killer clown, but he didn't actually kill people while dressed as a clown. His serial killing and his clowning, those interests of his didn't overlap too much. This 1892 opera, though, is all about what people think they know about Gacy. If you want to see a clown stabbing somebody to death, you sick animal, don't look to 1970s Illinois, look to 1890s opera. 
Now moving on to a clown who does not kill anybody, we have The Man Who Laughs. The Man Who Laughs was originally a Victor Hugo story. It was later adapted into a 1928 film, and it's the film that I really want to focus on here because that is what ended up having a bit more cultural influence. The main character of The Man Who Laughs is called Gwynplaine. He's played by Conrad Veidt in very heavy makeup, and the deal with Gwynplaine is that he is the son of an English noble who pissed off King James II. So King James II, who doesn't like being, you know, annoyed or made fun of, he orders the nobleman killed, and he also orders the nobleman's kid to be tortured and scarred so that his face can be made into a permanent grin. So his kid, who has just been traumatized through parent murder and torture, will always look like he is smiling. And the king says that he can always laugh at his fool of a father. Gwynplaine ends up homeless, he falls in with a wandering troupe of performers, he meets a girl who loves him, but he wonders how she can ever love a monster like him. Eventually his real identity is revealed, and then there's a bunch of intrigue and chase scenes, and the movie ends more or less happily. Though in the original Victor Hugo story, Gwynplaine kills himself, but the filmmakers, they left that off, they decide to cut the guy a break. Gwynplaine's face in the film looks explicitly clownish. Not only does he have this big rictus grin, he also is sporting very pale skin throughout the entirety of the film and appears on stage with a troop of clowns. He is mocked and he is jeered by an audience who thinks he looks like a freak and he tries to play up how oh so amusing his weird nasty looks are, but you can tell that he is in fact suffering inside. And he looks like a clown, sure, but he also looks disturbed and socially inappropriate. He does look like he is laughing at everything. He looks like somebody who would find everything funny and therefore would be sort of unsettling to communicate with. Gwynplaine's story is a dark one, and he's a sympathetic character, in keeping with a lot of other black-and-white monster movies. The Wolfman, Frankenstein's monster, the Bride of Frankenstein's monster, the Creature from the Black Lagoon, they all appear as monstrous, but they are ultimately tragic and misunderstood. Gwynplaine is kind of like that. He is very much in keeping with that character and story type. He looks monstrous, but he's not a monster. But fear and mockery of his appearance drives the story, and in this case, the central monster-looking character looks specifically like a clown. But it turns out, as always, the real monster was man. I encourage you to do a Google image search for the man who laughs, and if you see Veidt's makeup and his portrayal of Gwynplaine, you might think that it looks a little familiar. He looks a lot like the Joker of Batman fame. That's because he was the primary inspiration for that character. Batman co-creators Bill Finger and Bob Kane partly modeled the clown prince of crime on that 1928 movie. So, Conrad Veidt, thank you for inventing probably one of the most enduring villains in all of comics, even though you originally created him as a darkly sympathetic character. And I have one more unsettling clown for you. This one has maybe had less of a cultural impact than the others, but it was too odd to not mention, and that is The Crimson Clown. Pulp writer Johnston McCulley is best known as the creator of Zorro, but McCulley had a few other pulp creations, including Delton Prowse, a rich vigilante bachelor World War I vet who dons a garish costume and becomes the burglar known as The Crimson Clown. The Crimson Clown is basically 1920s Robin Hood, stealing from the rich and giving it to the poor, and he's often armed with knockout drugs delivered in the form of a syringe or of gas. 
In Macaulay's stories, the clown is described as wearing a red onesie and a white mask, and sometimes artists interpreted that as being a simple white domino mask, and other times the clown was drawn to having a full face mask, resembling the kind of grease paint that Joseph Grimaldi would have worn. And apparently this was really, really popular. As soon as Macaulay pumped out four Crimson Clown stories, his publishers rushed to put them all into a hardcover, because apparently vigilante burglar clowns who strike fear into the hearts of the decadent rich was the popular cultural hero of 1927. If anybody ever makes a Crimson Clown movie, I am so there. Get on that, Hollywood. So I've just given you a list of menacing, unsettling, occasionally evil clowns, and they're the ancestors of the Joker, of Pennywise, and of every scary clown costume you'll see this year during Halloween. But why is this a thing? How come there's a persistent linkage between comedy and malevolence? I don't want to go all woo-woo or Joseph Campbell on you, and I am a guy who likes weird history things, not like literary or cultural analysis, but mischievous malevolent tricksters are a recurring theme in all sorts of cultures. Every culture has rules, and almost every culture also has a folk character who breaks those rules. They are Loki. They are Coyote. They are Nancy the Spider. And those trickster figures aren't safe. They're not harmless or cuddly or even all that nice. They are people who do what they're not supposed to, and sometimes that makes them frightening or kind of jerks. But it's cathartic in a really, really messed up way to see rules get broken. It is kind of a weird release to look at all of the societal rules that bind you down and see some other character just throw them out the window. The way Mr. Punch sometimes throws his baby out the window. Or the way Kanio snaps. And it's even downright amusing to see the Joker take sadistic glee in all kinds of destruction and clown-themed murder. And, I guess it was also neat for 1920s pulp readers to vicariously experience the Crimson Clown stealing from a bunch of terrible 1920s rich people. And that's the one big secret, I think, of tricksters and troublemakers. They're apart from the established order. They are inherently transgressors. And that always makes them inherently a little bit dark and dangerous. So when you see a scary clown, there isn't really any kind of contradiction between the scary and the clown. A scary clown is just a type of clown. And we can all, safely, have fun taking part in their darkness. Just don't run off with any strange clowns you see in the woods, even if they say they have candy. This show is 100% listener-supported. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. There is a link for a Patreon campaign where you can sign up for a monthly donation. That would be excellent of you. Uh, go on iTunes, give us ratings, reviews, stars, etc. All the usual things. I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Also, Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Thank you guys very much for listening. Talk to you next week about more October horribleness. Bye. Bye.